What's up, guys? This is Cassie McNamara, your host, and you're listening to the Bethel Crossings podcast. Today, I'm here with Taylor Knight, managing editor of The Crossings. Taylor, would you like to say some things about yourself? Yeah, uh, I've been doing this for a little over a year now. Uh, it's been fun. I enjoy uh, being able to edit works uh, published by all sorts of or submitted by all sorts of people um, on campus, mainly writers because no one else either knows or cares. But <laughs> for the most part, um, yeah, I've I've enjoyed my time here working with everyone. Um, it's been a fun time. Just. Uh, I think the the big focus that we always have is the idea of, you know, making sure that God is prevalent in everything that we're working on and, and stuff, and I think we've done that so far, yeah. Yeah, awesome. So, how many years have you been on The Crossings? Um, started last year as just an editor, and then this year I've been working as the managing editor. Yeah, yeah. well, we've loved having you as the managing editor and having your <sighs> insights and brains, but today we actually are lucky enough to hear a piece for our podcast. Taylor's going to read one of his stories that he's written. But before he reads a story, we're going to do what we always do on this podcast starting today, which is what's your biggest piece of advice when you are writing or as a writer? Yeah, um, I think normally I am a stickler for grammar. I hate it. In fact, we've had uh, like adults, not just like students, but professionals on this campus They'll post stuff on, on, you know, Twitter or Facebook. This happened the other day, and I was mesmerized by the fact that they were abysmally horrible with their grammar. It looked like a fifth grader had, like, typed up something super fat. It looked like they had given the post to their kid and said, you run with it, Jimmy. (laughs) It was... It was horrendous. It was awful. And normally I would say grammar is the most important thing, but as I've gotten older, I think if you're a decent writer... You don't need to worry about that, at least not on your first draft. You just need to get it written. You know, I'm working on stuff now, and it's tiring because it's so, there's so much that has to get written, you know, Mm -hmm. especially if you're writing a novel. You just gotta write. Mm -hmm. And that's, that would be my my biggest advice. So just writing it down, getting it out there, not procrastinating, maybe, as as your host deals, uh, struggles with procrastination. Writer's block is is a real thing, but I think just sitting down and telling yourself, I gotta do this, maybe maybe giving God a prayer or two, Mm -hmm. that that usually helps, but yeah. Awesome, awesome. Well, great advice. Well, we're all dying to hear your story today, so I'm just gonna let you get to it. All right, so... The piece I wrote is titled Miracle. Um, this is a uh, memoir. I much prefer writing stuff about fantasy or you know science fiction, just fiction in general, not true stories. But this one is true. This did happen. Crazy, I know. But um, this was actually about me. It's kind of... It's difficult now for me looking back on it to be super well invested in this because like it, it feels so distant. But I think that's like the thing about when you experience a miracle it's like in the moment you're like oh my word this is so cool like god just came down and he healed me this is amazing but like time is is uh, almost you know it, it's a drug that it's an anesthesia that you get used to and over time you you mellow out and and you start to be like ah, yeah but it wasn't mm-hmm. that big of a deal you know um, but yeah, so the piece is miracle. Basically, I tore my meniscus, uh, which doesn't, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't sound like that big of a deal. Um, but it really was. It was a pretty bad injury from the looks of it, and it could have been um, pretty awful. But yeah, I, I got healed. So I'll read the piece starting uh, now. All right. 
I injured myself in August. There was nothing special about the day. A hot, grueling summer afternoon like the rest of them, with athletes bustling in and out of the facility just as they would any other time. I did a simple jump, landed in a squat, and heard a pop. I fell backward, initially laughing at how I had been so clumsy. Then I tried to stand, but there was pain. Not the stinging sort that jabs you like a needle. This was of a different sort, a numbing sort, the kind of pain that throbs until you stop performing whatever action is causing it, the sort of pain that aches from an unknown source. Though you know, wherever the origin, something is very wrong. I looked to my leg, but there was nothing out of place, no swelling, nothing sticking out. From the outside, I appeared perfectly fine, a figure of health, mostly. Coach told me to sleep it off, and I thought little of the wound that first night. Then I woke up, and the pain was still there. I went to the trainers, then a doctor, and the theory was a lateral meniscus tear. I think it important here to mention I am no biology major. For those sharing the sentiment, the meniscus is a spongy region of cartilage that cushions the blow between leg bones and the knee. Knees have two, with the lateral meniscus being on the outside of the leg, which supports more weight. I know little about how the body functions, but from the lack of concern on the doctor's face, I could only guess the injury was of little severity. However, if there's one piece of advice I've learned in college, it's that trusting the on-campus staff is ill-advised. I once had a trainer pull on my finger thinking it was dislocated, when in reality it had been cracked in half. The experience was less than stellar. I went to see another doctor. This one more renowned than the last and had an MRI done. This whole process took about a month and a half to complete. All the while I had been attending practice, exercising in the ways that I could, though I was often perturbed at how little my coach wanted me actually doing. I thought to tell him I was fine, but my pain was evidence to the contrary and he kept me confined to biking. Still, my hopes were high that the MRI would come back with proof of a tear in the meniscus at which point I'd get surgery and be back on track with my sport. After two weeks, the results finally came in. I have been given bad news before in my life. The most recent in memory was when I learned my fingers had been snapped in two and that it was unlikely I'd have full motion returned to them. Jesus healed me of that pain and I thought this would be no different. Then the doctor put the situation plainly to me. Typically with meniscus tears, uh, the tear occurs vertically on the inner or outer section. I had done neither of these. Instead, I had torn the entire meniscus in half, meaning there was no support between my bones. This threw out the notion of competing in sports for the year, unless I wanted to further damage the region, and arthritis was proven to occur within five years of an injury such as this. At the young age of 25, I'd have a, the knee of a 50-year-old. All this from what my coaches believed to be a sore knee. The doctor told me there was no chance of a track season, and because of the injury's rarity, not even he felt confident performing the surgery I needed. My only option was a facility in Chicago that had a doctor world-renowned for knee surgery, but even with him, the chances of success were not extremely high. It was hard keeping myself together in the office. I remember holding my composure as I talked with my dad, but tears slipped out here and there. I almost broke in the bathroom on my way out, but each time a bolt loosed, I screwed it back in. Don't cry, I told myself. There'd be time for that later. My senior year and the sport I dedicated seven years to was no longer viable. Yet, track to me was more than a sport. It was a place I could go to be around people like me, to get away from the rigors of classwork and responsibility. 
It was a place for me to be free, to unwind, and I'd lost it. Sure, I could show up. My coach even encouraged it, but attending wasn't the same as actually running. No one had expected a diagnosis this bad. On returning home, my roommates asked how the MRI went. I could barely respond. My body was already shutting down. As soon as I closed the basement door, my tears poured. A part of me broke inside and I collapsed on my bed, shaking. The following week was difficult. I am not a person who finds joy from many activities, but I'd found joy in track. It wasn't just about running, though I loved to sprint. To let all my anxieties and emotions loose themselves from my body as I ran was a feeling unlike any other. But track was about camaraderie, of having great people around you who cheered and believed in you the way no one else could. After the diagnosis, it seemed to me that one of life's great joys had been stripped from me. Yet, as most will agree, life is not meant to be a smooth ride. This much I knew. There is nothing to be done of the past, and asking what ifs has never amounted to good. A person's only choice is to keep moving, lest they be swallowed up by what's already occurred. The next step was Chicago, so I went. The doctors there gave me the same diagnosis. They showed the MRI, pointed to where my meniscus was supposed to be, and showed how it had been torn in two. A silver lining with these doctors, however, was actual data. I knew the odds of success, 75 to 80%. If the meniscus healed, which would be impossible to tell until months later, there was a chance I'd be able to compete in outdoor track. I was ecstatic. It was like a glimmer of hope had struck me in the dead of night. Hope my track career may not end after all. But first, I needed surgery. I'd been through the process before, but it's always unnerving. I hate needles, especially when they're jabbed into the vulnerable places of my arms. Still, whatever it took to get healed, I was willing to do. In the weeks to come, I had many friends pray over me, more than I had expected, if I must be truthful. It was nice. In many ways, I have often found myself feeling alone in life, not because I truly am, but because at times I am deliberately distant. Humorous, funny, and a little quirky is the persona I've tried to emulate. I don't like showing anything beyond that because I've done so before and no one cared. I don't want anyone thinking I'm weak or too broken to fix, so I don't show the deeper emotions inside me. On the day of my diagnosis, my roommates may have heard my tears, but they never saw them and they never will. When it became apparent that many people, more than a dozen, more than two dozen, in fact, well over a hundred were praying for me and encouraging me through the process. I didn't know how to feel. I just recall that it was nice. The day of surgery arrived. Lying helpless on a gurney is always a strange feeling. You're so vulnerable and yet so cozy. Tubes are linked to your body, pumping in all sorts of fluid to relax you. For a moment, despite your lack of control, you feel completely safe. It's comfy to lay on the thick padding of the gurney while warm blankets cover you in an effort to keep you from freezing in the cold room. Nurses came in and out. I cracked jokes with some of them until it was time to be wheeled back to the operating room. The anesthesiologist let me know when they had begun putting me under, telling me to think of mountains or clouds to dream about this wasn't my first rodeo, though. I knew you didn't dream while under anesthesia. You're just gone, and then the next moment, you're not. That groggy feeling is never something you get used to either. I remember being conscious, but so dreary I refused to open my eyes. Like when you're slowly pulled out of your dreams in the morning but hate the notion of waking up. 
My dad was standing next to me in the moment after I opened my eyes, and then the nurse came in. Your surgery was a success, she said, but her eyes were to the paperwork in her hands. So you repaired my meniscus, I asked. It was rhetorical. I know. But I was high at the time, so you'll forgive the repetition. No, she said after a moment. No meniscus repair was needed. I was frozen in place for a while, unable to move. It's one thing to hear of miracles, but it's another to believe you've experienced one firsthand. At the instant of realization, at least for me, there was a sensation of bewilderment that took hold, like something impossible had just been accomplished. Imagine what you might feel if a rock were to levitate before your eyes, or you realized you could use the force. This was the sensation I felt when the nurse told me my meniscus, which was said to have been ripped in half by three separate doctors, had actually been intact, mostly. My meniscus had been torn, that much was true, but it had not been severed as everyone had believed, and repairing it was a simple task. I was expected to be on crutches for over a month, a length of time which would have required a brace to keep my leg in place while it healed. The total recovery time, assuming it healed, was to be between three to four months. When the doctor came in to see me, he said I'd be able to run in two weeks and the recovery period would only be at most four to six weeks. In the following moments, I stood on my own two feet, no crutches needed. Sometimes I wonder what a miracle is supposed to look like, as if it must come in a certain shape and size. I don't think there is any better way to describe a miracle other than that which is not supposed to happen. It is for this reason that I believe in them. Because my track season was supposed to be down the drain, my quality of life for future years potentially worsened. Now I have an entire season ahead of me and a leg on the road to full recovery. Running is not something a person has all their life to be good at. And having one more chance to do it, to race others around the track and share memories with my teammates, is a feeling that, feeling that brings joy to my heart. It's a sign that this element of my life is not forfeit after all that there is still a purpose for me in it. If there wasn't, I would surely not be standing on my own two feet. I didn't expect a miracle, nor did I feel worthy of one. But I don't think it's about being worthy. I think I was healed because Jesus heard my prayers and heard the prayers of others. But more importantly, I think he healed me because he saw the commitment of a few faithful friends who took the time out of their lives to lay hands on me. They pleaded on my behalf I wasn't worthy of a miracle. I am no saint, but neither is anyone else. I was healed because the story to be told from it will do more good than I ever could. It is the act that brings glory to God, and it is my responsibility to tell about it. That is why Jesus healed me. Wow. So, yeah, this is my second time hearing your story. I read it the first time, and... It was just really surprising to me because, like you said, I've read one of your stories and it wasn't serious at all. So seeing your more serious writing was really cool to me. And I think that this story just has a lot to be said about faith and about friendship and all the things that really mean the most in life. So I think it's a really purposeful story. And I enjoyed reading it. Hopefully everybody enjoyed listening to it. Um, 
So I guess one of my first questions is, do you really believe that, like, you experienced a miracle? Yes, 100%. 100%. And um, I think it... But I think the thing about most miracles is that there is room for you to not believe, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You've got a choice in life. Jesus isn't going to force it upon you. I think there are situations where, in desperate times, yes... People will see a miracle. Like, I, I remember one of my professors telling me this dude got his leg run over, completely crushed, prayed over it, healed. That, wow. That's something you cannot deny right there. Yeah. It's like, oh, th- that leg was shattered, and now it's whole again. Um, this was obviously not that, but it was one of those things where it's like, I already have faith. You know, it's, it's not that I needed to have a miracle to believe, um, but it was one of those things where looking back, you know, yeah, if it's still my choice to believe whether, you know, it was a miracle mm-hmm. or not. Yeah. Um, because so the doctor came back after the surgery and he they, they my dad was shocked. I was shocked. And he pointed to where um, it had been torn. And he was like, this is a little misleading um, mm-hmm. in that it's not actually completely torn. But I have a hard time believing that somehow three separate doctors misinterpreted the, the rip so that, that doctor sense. saw your knee before the surgery right they and all then, looked at yeah what did he say after the surgery was he like that's crazy like it should have been ripped he, and so yeah he was more uh nonchalant about it because it, it was surgery day he mm-hmm. has to do this with a ton of people mm-hmm. um he he wasn't that surprised um i i would have thought he would have been yeah. but he wasn't and you know, he's seen surgeries and situations like that before. So I don't think it was overly surprising. Mm-hmm. I think, if anything, he sounded a little relieved to know <laughs> that it was a quicker surgery. Like, yeah. oh, I don't have to go through all of the, you know. Um, but I think the problem I have believing that it was truly just a, a slight misinterpretation mm-hmm. is the fact that the the way they had gotten the, the MRI was you could see it perfectly. Mm-hmm. And you could see it from more than one angle. And the fact of the matter was they looked at it from every angle and said, this is ripped in half. Mm-hmm. Um, and this wasn't by one doctor. This wasn't by two doctors. This was by three different physicians who all came back and said the exact same thing. So I have a very difficult time believing that somehow it was just, you know, mm-hmm. it was just that. So, um, yeah, I think it was a miracle. Yeah, I love the way you're looking at that because a lot of people uh, today will say, oh, it was just like it's just good luck or something like that but you're right in saying that you have to like choose to believe that it was a miracle yeah. and i think that that's a really great way to honor god in in his miracle of fixing your knee um so yeah that's really cool so i know you and we're on the same track team and yeah. i've had a lot of fun times with you and to hear that you were kind of down and disappointed and you know you know how people get they get kind of down when things like that happen so what is your advice to maybe somebody listening, um, going through something pretty hard? What's your advice on how to kind of just stay positive and to rely on your friends, let your friends kind of cheer you up and that yeah. kind of thing? Because that can be hard. Yeah. Uh, well, if they don't have Jesus, it's going to be tough. Mm-hmm. If they don't have God, it's going to be tough. Um, I think, like, you know, I, I get depressed at times. I think most people in today's day and age, but I've had mm-hmm. Jesus. I've had someone to go to and I think it's difficult for people who don't believe in anything to see value not only in the world but in their own lives um it's tough I think one of the greatest lessons I can try and give to just anyone is 
you cannot change the past. Whatever happened, it happened. Mm-hmm. It there is no you're gonna you're gonna kill yourself mentally if you keep going back and thinking, oh, but if this had happened or if this had happened, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you can't fix it. Okay? The only thing you can do is go forward with your life. And, you know, if if you ruin a relationship or something, try and make amends, you know. Um you you've gotta take some responsibility in your own mm-hmm. life and say that I yeah, this sucked. And and a lot of things happened like that was out of my control. I just jumped and I've jumped a thousand times before and, mm-hmm. and it ripped. Um, you know, sometimes just terrible things happen that you can't control. It's not your fault. And that that's gotta be the first realization. This isn't you know, this wasn't my responsibility. I didn't do this. Um but this is the card I've been dealt and I have to make do with it. Um Yeah. So Yeah, so like living in the moment, I guess, not dwelling on the past. Right. I think that's really good advice. Dwelling on the past can really just yeah. keep us in the past instead of kind of living in the present and yeah. and making the present better than maybe the situation. So that's really yeah. good advice, yeah. All right, so I really appreciate you coming and telling your story. Yeah, and sure. I mean, it was my second time hearing it, but I think I heard some great things that I didn't even hear the first time, and we got some great advice. And I appreciate your writing, and I also appreciate you as a teammate and as your teammate, I know that you have a knack of telling a lot of jokes. Maybe some of them aren't yeah. as bethical. You're already thinking of some of them right now. That's why you're laughing. As possible. But uh, maybe to end this podcast, you can share one of your jokes. Yeah, sure. All right. Yeah, let me think real quick. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I got one. All okay, right. okay. All right, here we go. Uh, what kind of fish doesn't swim? Um, What kind of fish? A dead one. <laughs> Well, you guys heard it here. (laughs) Thank you, Taylor. Anything you'd like to say to the listeners? Nope. That's (laughs) all I got for y'all. All All right. Thank you guys for tuning in. This was your host, Cassie McNamara. If any of you want to be featured on the podcast, reading your stories, you can email us at crossings at bethelluniversity.edu. And until then, I'll see you guys next episode. (laughs) 